Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Most of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And we're just going to dive right in this morning because today is Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday before Easter. It's the Sunday where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt. It's the week that we prepare for Resurrection Sunday. And so I just want to begin by reading Luke 19, 37 through 44. Luke 19, 37 through 44. It'll be up on the screen. So you can either turn there or you can just follow along. I don't want you being turned into all over the place. So maybe you just have First Timothy open. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and he stands over the city, and he begins to weep. And the way that Luke describes this is this not just small tears, but Jesus bursts into tears. He's wailing over the city of Jerusalem because they were at war with their Creator. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And that may describe you here this morning. You may have come into this place anxious, concerned, maybe wayward, maybe feeling a little helpless, maybe not sure what your relationship is with the living God. You've come into this place and you feel like a sheep without a shepherd. And I've got good news for you this morning because those are exactly the type of people that Jesus loves to save. Jesus loves to save those who are helpless, those who are hopeless, and those who are hell-bound. And every single one of us We're there at one time, and you may be there this morning, but I have hope for you that Jesus has come with great compassion for you to give you salvation. Now you may say, what does this passage have to do? Jesus crying over Jerusalem. What does this have to do with our passage this morning in 1 Timothy? Well, it ties together nicely because as we're going to see, Paul can't help but just erupt into praise because of God's amazing grace, God's unlimited mercy, God's great compassion, God's unlimited 
patience. So let's read together, if you will, in 1 Timothy, focusing on the gospel. Remember last week we talked about the difference between the law and the gospel. The gospel tells us what we must do and how we don't live up to God's standard. The gospel announces to us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so Paul just launches right into the gospel, the good news. So let's read this together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You can distill this passage of Scripture down to one statement. What's the big idea? What's the major theme of this passage of Scripture? It's simply this. When Jesus humbles you with His mercy, you cannot help but burst into praise. When you've been humbled by the mercy of Jesus, you can't help but just worship Him in praise. And we're going to see that unfold for us this morning in three sections or three truths. And so in verses 12 through 14, we see the first instance here. First, Paul gives thanks for God's overflow of mercy. Now, in verse 12, Paul's amazed that God would save him, that God would appoint him as an apostle. I give thanks, or I thank him who's given me strength. In the original language, I continually keep on thanking God. Do you know that one of the marks of a true Christian is this? You are a thankful person. You are constantly giving thanks for what God has done in your life. What does the Bible describe as those who are under God's wrath and don't believe in Jesus? How are they described? It's very interesting. Those that are non-believers are described this way in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. One of the marks of a true Christian is that you are a thankful person. You are always giving thanks to God. And notice what Paul says gives thanks for. I give thanks, or I thank Him who has given me strength. Aren't you thankful God gives you strength? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So Paul says, I am so thankful that God has given me strength, and He's given me strength, and He's called me to be an apostle. He's counted me worthy to be an apostle. Now, this isn't because God saw any intrinsic worth in Paul and and looked at Paul and said, you're all that. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to give three things here that were strikes against him.
that, that God would not choose him or God would not have him be an apostle. But basically what Paul's saying is, I can't get over the fact, I can't stop thanking God that he's given me strength and he has appointed me to be an apostle. And we know there's nothing good in Paul or was nothing good in Paul because Paul lists three things about his former life. Paul gives a little bit of a biography here about what his former life looked like before God saved him. So what does Paul say about himself? Well, the first thing he says there in verse 13, Though formerly, formerly in my past life, before God saved me, I was a blasphemer. I cussed God out. I hated God. Acts 26, 11, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a rabid persecutor of Christians and he hated God. He was a blasphemer. That means to cuss God out. What else did Paul say about himself? Well, he says, I was also a persecutor. Paul was a persecutor of the church. As a matter of fact, he was considered a murderer because he would actually drag people from house to house. In Galatians 1.13, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul was a wicked, violent, angry God-hater. And the sad thing about it is that he thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was a, a Pharisee exceeding all of these requirements that God had of him. But yet he was a hater of God. And then number three, notice what he says there. I was an insolent opponent or a violent opponent. Acts chapter 8 verse 3. But Saul, and that, that was Paul's name before God changed him, was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was an angry, violent, blasphemous persecutor of God's people. And Paul says, I was acting in ignorance. Now notice what he says there. At the end of verse 13, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, I don't think Paul was using ignorance as an excuse for what he was doing. I don't think Paul says, I was ignorant, so I get off the hook. I think Paul, what Paul was saying was, I was ignorant because I was blinded by Satan. I had no idea what I was doing because the God of this world had blinded me. I had no clue what the gospel was. I thought I was doing God's work as a Pharisee, but really, I was ignorant of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, in their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. We need to be very careful here. We cannot excuse unbelievers for the way they act. But we also need to realize they're acting like unbelievers. Unbelievers are spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. They're enslaved to their sins. They're enslaved to their flesh. They can't help but act ignorantly in unbelief because that's what it means to be unsaved. That's what it means to be lost. Yet despite these three strikes that Paul had against him, notice what he says. Verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Those three strikes against me. But I received mercy. Mercy is the key word in this passage of Scripture. 
Now, what is mercy? What's really tied to that Old Testament concept of hesed, that Old Testament word hesed, God's faithful covenant love to us, his steadfast love to us. I went back and I was looking at the Old Testament. I thought, what's a good Old Testament passage that really encapsulates mercy? And and Isaiah is one of my favorite Old Testament books. Isaiah 63, 7 through 9. I will recount the steadfast love. There's that word has said. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he's granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all of the days of old. Mercy, compassion, pity, steadfast love. You know, the word mercy really carries this idea. If you look at the Old Testament concept of mercy, it's this idea that we're helpless, pitiful little children that can contribute nothing, and God as a parent reaches down and he saves us and he loves us and he takes us to himself. We have nothing to offer this infinitely holy God except of our sin and our wretchedness, but he chooses to stoop down and to receive us into his arms as a loving parent would a helpless child. And Paul goes on to mention more of this grace and mercy in verse 14. The grace, different word there, before it was mercy. Now he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed. Overflowed, over over and abundant. It was generous, it was powerful, it was super abundant. It's the idea of this cup overflowing with liquid, with water that just keeps overflowing. God's love just keeps overflowing to us in grace and mercy. Romans 5, 5, Paul says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He's given to us. So God's love, God's mercy is overabundant, is overflowing, is maximum in the life of Paul. Which is amazing because Paul says, Listen, I, I was a wicked, arrogant, evil, violent persecutor of all these Christians, but God showed me mercy. And notice what God gives to Paul as gifts in his salvation. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As a non-believer who is dead in sins and trespasses, you cannot have faith in Jesus and you cannot love God unless God changes your heart to be able to do that you've got to be released from your captivity to sin to be able to even exercise faith and love God we're enslaved John 6 says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day God has to draw you and grant you that faith so that you will come to Christ 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our condition before God saved us. We were spiritually dead. We were children of wrath. We were separated from God. We could not come. Paul says in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul says, listen, because this was my condition and it's all of our conditions before God saves us, you can't simply just flip a switch and say, hey, I'm going to believe in Jesus. You can't do it. You are spiritually dead. You are alienated from God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. God's got to make you alive in Christ. He's got to give you a new heart. And when he does that, he gives you the gift of faith to be able to trust in Jesus. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. This faith is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted, it's been given to you, it's, it, you've been enabled for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You've got to be given the gift of faith in order to trust Christ, and then once you've been given the gift of faith, then you have the ability to love God. You could not love God before in your lost state as well. Love is the fruit of genuine faith. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And Paul is saying, listen, I was dead in sin. I was a rebel. I was a child of wrath. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent. I was a persecutor. I was a violent opponent of God, and God did something in my heart. He overflowed this mercy to me. He gave me this compassion. He stooped down and he grabbed me out of that depravity and he gave me new life. And when he gave me that new life, I was able to have faith in Jesus and I was able to love God for the very first time. But because before, whether I knew it or not, I hated God. And so Paul's reflecting upon this. And he says, I am always in an attitude of thanks, thankfulness. I thank my God for doing this. So the first thing Paul does is he expresses this thanks. Now the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture is the trustworthy message, which is really the heart of the gospel. Paul gets to the very heart of what the gospel message is, and he gives us this trustworthy saying. So let's look at this trustworthy saying. It's in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, this is the first of five trustworthy sayings that Paul gives in First and Second Timothy. It's very similar. I don't know if you remember many, many years ago when we went through the Gospel of John. Jesus has these sayings in the Gospel of John where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. In the Greek, it's amen, amen. It's almost Paul's saying, this is very important. This, this saying is trustworthy, and you need to accept it. You need to listen to it. It needs to be embraced with complete confidence. It needs your full attention. Now, what's the, what's the trustworthy saying? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now, it's interesting. Where did this saying come from? It's a trustworthy saying. Paul assumes that the early church already knows this trustworthy saying. Where did it come from? Did he just make it up? No, it came from Jesus himself. What did Jesus say? 
Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what is this trustworthy saying? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now we could spend a month of Sundays on just that one statement. What does it mean that Jesus came into the world? It means that Jesus left the glories of heaven, was born of a virgin, took on flesh, lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, and completed the mission of going to the cross. He came into the world sent by the Father who loved the world. John 14, 26, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, what was Jesus' mission when he came? I've come into the world to do something specific, to save. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not to make salvation possible. Not to make it hypothetical. Not so that you could set up a system where you could save yourself. But to definitively and particularly and definitively save those whom God has chosen to save. He came to save sinners that's why when he was born matthew 121 she shall bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins mark 10 45 for even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so when jesus died on the cross he cried out it is halfway done right Making sure you're paying attention this morning. I've set up a system whereby if you just kind of do some things, you can save yourself. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, it is what? Finished. He definitively did the work necessary to purchase our salvation. He did it. It was a full atonement to save sinners. Only sinners need to be saved. If you think you're good, if you think you're spiritual, if you think you're all that, if you think you're okay with God, you don't need salvation. You don't need to be saved. You think you have a good standing with God on your own. See, the cross of Christ assumes that every single one of us is a sinner separated from God. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of my favorite Scholars, theologians, and he passed away back in 2017 is R.C. Sproul. We like R.C. Sproul around here, by the way. We've got the Table Talk magazines out there. But R.C. Sproul tells a story about in the late 60s. It was the height of the Vietnam War. He was a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. And there was all these protests on campus, and he just wanted to get away from all the mess. He wanted to get away from it. So he goes into the teacher's lounge to kind of get an hour of silence. And as he's coming out, this young man you know, basically stops him from leaving and gets in his face and says, are you saved? And R.C. Sproul said, what I really wanted to say was this. I really want to be saved from pushy guys like you that are preventing me from doing what I want to do, so get out of my face. That's what I really want to be saved from, is what R.C. said. I really wanted to say to him. But the guy kept saying, are you saved? Are you saved? And R.C. said, saved from what? The young man's like, what do you mean, saved from what? He kind of gave a really shallow gospel presentation. He says, well, you just need Jesus. And, of course, the young man was excited to share the gospel. But R.C. said, 
Save from what? Well, he went on to write a book, R.C. Sproul. That book's called Save from What? And here's the answer. We need to be saved from God. You're like, what? Sometimes we think we need to be saved from our sins, yes. But ultimately, God deserves to punish us for our sins. We deserve his wrath. And so what we really need to be saved is, is from the wrath to come. And notice what Paul calls himself. Paul makes up a Greek word here. I always like it when Paul makes up words. I guess when you're writing scripture, you're allowed to do that. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The worstest of the worst. He's the worst of sinners. 1 Corinthians 15.9 says this, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm sure there's a lot more evil people out there that have committed worse sins than Paul, but in Paul's mind, Paul is thinking this, there's nobody I know that's sinned as bad as I have. I hated God. I hated Christians, and I was part of that persecuting I, I was a wicked, vile man. In my mind, Paul's saying, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the poster child for someone who's a God-hating rebel blasphemer. But I want you to notice that word mercy again. I'm the worst of sinners. But, verse 16, I received mercy. Literally, I was mercied. I was mercied. And let me ask you a very simple question, and you can answer out loud if you want to. Make sure you're awake this morning. Does God have to give you mercy? Is God obligated to give you mercy? Can God choose whom he gives mercy to? Romans 9, 15-16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If you ever begin to think that mercy is something that God is obligated to give you, it ceases to be mercy. It's what you're owed. And what we're owed is wrath and hell and condemnation. So God is under no obligation to give us mercy, but he chooses to do so because he's a sovereign God and he dispenses that mercy in a way that glorifies him. But I want you to pay attention to the wording here. Why, why was Paul given mercy? Was it just so Paul could get saved? Yes. But notice what Paul says there. I received mercy for this reason. He gives the reason. Why, why was I shown mercy? As this blasphemer, as this arrogant blinded, rebellious man, why was I given mercy? Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul doesn't just say patience. He puts an adjective before it. Perfect, ultimate, powerful, Deep, overflowing. Let me just ask you a question. 
aren't you thankful for the perfect patience of Jesus? If Jesus had not been patient with you and me, where would we be? Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's slow to anger. That's, that's another word for patience. He's slow to anger. I've often thought about if I was God in the Old Testament, would you be patient with Israel or would you just want to wipe them off the map? Adam and Eve, after they sinned, you could just say, you know what, we're done with this whole human race thing. We're done. And then I look at my own life and I'm like, I'm no different than Adam and Eve. I'm no different than Israel. I don't deserve patience. Why is God showing it to me? Joel 2.13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. We read this earlier during our time of confession, Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is slow to anger. God is patient. God has perfect patience. And the reason he's showing this perfect patience to Paul is so that he would be, and the ESV uses the word example, Model. Literally, in the original language, it meant to sketch out or to draw, like to draw something. It's almost like a word picture or an illustration. A living, Paul would be a living illustration drawn out in beautiful colors to show how God can take a wretched sinner that's rebellious against him and turn him into one that follows him by sovereign grace. Paul's an example of that. And Paul says, this, not only, I'm not only an example of that, but I'm also an example to show that that can happen to anybody. Notice what else he says there. And to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If God showed that amount of patience to Paul, think about the patience he can show to you. If you confess your sin, if you confess your wickedness, if you confess your need for Jesus, He will save you. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, <clears throat> and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay, so what is Paul doing here? Paul says, listen, I, I'm thinking about my life before I was a Christian, and I'm giving thanks. And I'm thinking about God's perfect patience that he showed me in Christ, this overflowing, this patience, this mercy that's overflowing, that, that this, this mercy he didn't have to give to me, and he showed me, and I'm the foremost, I'm the worst of sinners. And here's the third thing we see in this passage of Scripture. We see an outburst of praise to the infinitely majestic God. Now, now, this is my sanctified imagination. I'm picturing Paul writing this down. And I'm picturing Paul writing down, and he's thinking about this, and he puts a pencil down, and he stops, and this big smile gets on his face, and he says, I can't help but talk about how awesome Jesus is. I am overflowing with 
praise. And so what he does is he goes into what we call a doxology. A doxology to the king. You know it's an doxology when, when you see Paul kind of stop and say, now to the, and he starts giving these descriptions and he ends with an amen. Here's the point. When you begin to think about God's perfect patience and amazing grace, it should lead to worship. You should be floored. You should put your pen down when you're reading your Bible and you should fall on your knees and say, thank you, Jesus, for this mercy. And notice how it turns to worship. And some deep worship because Paul just bursts into this doxology, this worship, and he gives four descriptions about the nature of God. To the king of the ages, really the king eternal, the everlasting king, the king of kings. And Paul draws from a lot of Old Testament imagery to just elevate the glory of God, the king eternal, the unchanging eternal king. Psalm 74, 12. Yet, God my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This was read to open up our service, Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. He's the living God, the only God, the true God, the King eternal. But He's also... Immortal or unchangeable. God does not change. I'll give you a big $10 word. He's immutable. <laughs> Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God can't lie. God can't change. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is the immortal, unchangeable, immutable God. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So he's the king, the everlasting king. He's the unchangeable, immortal God. And then Paul says, number three here, he's invisible. Now, remember when Moses wanted to see God's glory? Moses says, hey, God, I want to see all your glory. And God says, you can't handle the truth. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock and passes by him. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We are not allowed to see the full glory of God. That's why he's invisible. He's in unapproachable life, because if we saw the full glory of God, we could not handle it. He's the king eternal. He's the unchangeable, immortal God. He's the invisible God. And Paul rounds it out there. He says, he's the only God. The only true living God. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
Psalm 86.10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 37.20, so now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, but yet there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And Paul repeats this at the end of Timothy. We'll get there in a few months, but 1 Timothy 6 which he will display at the proper time, he who's the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And Paul here says, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 34, 4, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here's the point. When you've been humbled by mercy, you can't help but erupt with praise. You can't help but worship. Think about what Paul's thinking about here. I want you to get the depth of this. The transcendent, holy, immortal, unchangeable, invisible, awesome, powerful God dared, chose to send Jesus in the flesh to come and save sinners like us. That's incomprehensible to me. Why would God do that? Why did God have to do that? He didn't have to do it. He did it because it was his will and it was his glory. So how do you respond to this? Let me give you some suggestions this morning how you can respond in worship and in adoration. I think the first thing we, we should do, fall to your knees in humble worship for God's sovereign grace. Fall to your knees. Again, God was under no obligation to give you this mercy. He did not have to show it to you. And every time you think about God's mercy and his patience, you should be leveled to the ground in your knees in humility, saying, thank you, God, for saving me because I don't deserve it. Humble ourselves before this great God. But I think there's a second thing we need to understand. We need to show an urgent compassion to those that are still trapped in their sin. Do you realize that there are unsaved friends and family members that are like you were before you were saved? Are you burdened by those who are still in their sins? Does your heart break for those that have not experienced that patience that you have? Does your heart break for them? When you're leveled and you're humbled by mercy given to you, it's not for you to keep it to yourself, but to share that with others. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Do you warn 
do you love? Are you urgent? Are you compassionate about those who have yet to receive that mercy that you've received? And there's a third thing to think about. Never lose hope that God can forgive the most wicked of sinners. There's nobody so wicked that God cannot save. You may be sitting out there saying, well, Pastor Sean, you don't know the things I've done. I probably don't. That God does. And look at the things Paul did. He was the worst of sinners. You know, I don't think Paul ever got over the fact that he was saved by grace. I think Paul was just daily blown away by the fact that God had saved him. He never got over it. And that's the point. You should never get over your salvation. You should think often about how God saved you. Think often about your life before you were saved. Think often about what it means to be under God's wrath, but now a child of mercy. Think about God's patience toward you. Never, never give over God's mercy. Have you been humbled by mercy? Are you truly humbled by that mercy? If you have, if you are, then you can't help but burst into praise. And you can't help but show gratitude and awe and worship and thankfulness. And you're going to want to tell others about that mercy and grace and patience that you received. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I want us to give thanks as Paul did. And as we take communion together, I want us to really be thinking about the patience of Christ. His perfect patience for you. So as we think about the body and the blood of Jesus being broken and poured out for us, His blood flowed on that cross. His love has flowed into our hearts. Let us be joyful. Let us be thankful. Let us be worshipful. And so let us use the Lord's Supper as a time to burst into praise because we've been humbled by mercy. If you're not humbled by mercy, if you, if you, if, if you have not, if, if you don't get over your salvation, if it's just kind of become stale to you, then something is wrong with you. You need to go before the Lord and ask Him to renew that joy in your heart. So let's use the Lord's Supper this morning as a time to be thankful, to be grateful, to burst into praise because we've been humbled by mercy, and we've experienced the perfect patience of Jesus for us when he did not have to show it to us. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go into a time of observing the Lord's Supper together. This morning, and we are so grateful for your mercy. And your kindness and your patience. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we know the depth of our sin. We know the thoughts that we've had this week. We know the things that have flown out of our mouths this week. We know the things that we've done this week that are displeasing to you. We are sinners. And some of us could be at the front of the line and say, I'm the worst. I got Paul beat. 
the beauty, Lord Jesus, is that you reach down in compassion and patience because you came to save sinners. Jesus, we thank you for saving us on the cross, not making it a possibility, not making it a hypothetical, but actually literally absorbing God's wrath in our place, making full atonement, crying out, it is finished, and buying us out of that bondage to sin. And we want to take this opportunity as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to to let it be a time of gratitude and worship and joy and humility. So thank you, Jesus, for the joy of our salvation and thank you for the joy of being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family under your Lordship. So prepare our hearts to take communion together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.